Hey everybody, this is Todd. Um, this is uh, part one of a two-part interview. Um, we interview two amazing women, uh, Sarah Kanishnik and Diane Lance Kautz, and it's all about uh, common sense gun laws. So hopefully you enjoy it. This is part one, podcast number 433. Hope you enjoy. Do, 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 do. Here we go. My name is Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 432. And uh, we have a uh, two special guests with us, don't we, sweetheart? Yes. Um, who is this person to my left? Uh, our first, yes, we actually know the number of this podcast. It's 433, Todd. Yes, Because you're you. always saying, I think. <laughs> um, so anyway, our first guest is my friend Diane Lanskouts. She is the person that we've been talking about on the show so much who created a Moms Demand Action chapter in Elmhurst. Thank you, Diane. So Diane is going to talk to us a little bit about that. All right. And then to my right is Sarah Kanijnik. Did I do it right? You did. That's beautiful. Me. And um, because I'm not extremely familiar with um, who you are, what you do, what organization you belong to, Sarah, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I would love to introduce myself. Uh, just like Diane, I'm a volunteer with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. I'm the local group lead for Vernon Hills, Illinois. Uh, I've been doing that work for about three years. About a year ago, um, I became much more deeply involved in the gun violence prevention movement, and um, mid-summer of 2017, I started working full-time as a gun violence prevention advocate in Illinois. I work for the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence, and I run, manage, um, I facilitate cooperation among the members, the 140 member organizations of the Illinois Gun Violence Prevention Coalition, of which Moms Demand Action is a member. So we saw, so Kathy and I have gone to this um, chapter that Diane began March. Yeah, our first meeting was in March. So we went to the March meeting, and um, it's Moms Demand Action, yet I'm a guy, and somehow you let me in the door. I know. Why did you do that? If it's Moms Demand Action... Because it's open to everybody. Oh, it is. It is. It's open to moms, men, mm -hmm. grandparents, uh, doctors, nurses, anybody. One of the first questions, I had Diane speak to my tribe men's group, and one of the first <laughs> questions was, do you have to call it Moms Demand Action? I know. They wanted a name change. I know. Which I found fascinating. Very frustrating. But that's okay. That's okay. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, and like we, we actually talked about this on this morning's show, we talked about how, you know, a lot of times when we're not used to not being included, that's the first thing we recognize. But as women, sometimes we're used to that. <laughs> Our name is not always right. on everything. But so, Diane, explain how you got involved in Moms. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going to go back and explain Moms, you know, because we talked about that, um, that it's Moms Demand Action. And like so many things in our society and culture. It was started by moms. So um, basically just a little over five years ago, the day after Sandy Hook in um, December, um, there was a woman by the name of Shannon Watts who was a stay-at-home mom, five children, and um, she was obviously deeply moved by the tragedy at Sandy Hook. So the following day, out of her frustration, she had um, went online looking for some type of organization that she could get involved with, similar to Moms um, Demand, excuse me, Moms Against Drunk Driving, or Drivers, excuse me, um, and she couldn't find anything. So she started a Facebook page thinking, well, I'm just going to start a Facebook page um, and see if I can get anybody interested, if there's anybody out there who is as frustrated as I am. 
needless to say, there were there were many people who ended up joining the Facebook page within days. And it was from that, from that Facebook page that the organization grew and started. And that's why it was called Moms Demand Action, because really it was just a, a large group of, of frustrated moms who had started this right after Sandy Hook. But that was over five years ago. And, you know, it just started with a group of people on Facebook, but has grown to this huge organization. There are chapters in every state now in the United States. Um, we have over four and a half million uh, volunteers or supporters of Moms Demand Action. And then um, usually we say, I don't know, Sarah, about um, how many hundred thousand? It's about 200, or two, almost 300,000 active, like on the ground. We, we call them kind of on the ground troops in uh, moms who are the active volunteers who are just going out and getting involved with trying to make change, uh, either at the legislative level, with elections, um, uh, marching, uh, just being out there and trying to get the message out there. And uh, the numbers, I assume, have been increasing in the last X amount of months and years. And I just wonder, uh, Sarah, you actually talked about this. Um, what was, what's been the big catalyst for the growth in numbers? Well, a lot of people assume that the growth, uh, the catalyst for that growth has been Parkland, which uh, the, park, the tragedy in Parkland certainly did contribute. And we saw all across the country, definitely in Illinois, um, but it's true in every state throughout the nation, huge increases in membership um, in the, the wake of Parkland. But that uh, event really is what thrust gun violence prevention into the national consciousness. Although... Uh, the the interest and had been building for a very long time before that and so people typically assume the the catalyst for the growth was parkland but i've been in this movement for three years and i've i remember what it was like three years ago and i've seen the changes that have taken place first i actually describe the real catalyst for change uh, was the first women's march after um, donald trump's inauguration and I can tell you, um, you know, before that event uh, in Vernon Hills, if I had, you know, seven or eight people show up at a Moms Demand Action meeting, you know, I was delighted. Uh, right after the inauguration, I started getting, you know, 20 to 30. And I thought that was just, I was just over the moon. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then after Las, or Las Vegas, we saw, you know, more people starting to come out. Um, and then after Parkland, it just went through the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. But um, from my perspective, real change happened after the Trump election and this there was this sort of sea change of mostly progressive minded people getting getting engaged in the political system. You know, one thing you said at the meeting, and Diane, I don't know if it was Diane or you, Sarah, was about while, um, again, politically speaking, when Barack Obama was president, actually gun sales were doing really well. And then after, once Trump was elected, gun sales went down. Can you explain that for people who don't understand that? Yes, I would be happy to explain that. Um, the truth is the kinds of people who feel like they need to have many guns, um, and I, I don't want to lump in all gun owners here because the vast majority of gun owners, um, you know, they might have one or two, they might be using it for hunting. It's, um, you know, a really important cultural and, and um, cultural touchstone for them and for their families. Um, and the vast majority are not unreasonable in terms of um, the number of guns that they feel like they have to have. However, there are a minority of gun owners in this country who, the truth is, um, you know, they're very susceptible to the NRA's 30 plus year long propaganda campaign that's really based on fear. 
And um, the primary fear that that campaign tries to stoke is that the government will come and take all of your guns away. So the, the simple truth is, and you know, I really think anybody who um, disagrees with what I'm about to say really just either doesn't have the full picture or is not really willing to look the truth in the face. It's a combination of having a progressive candidate, President Barack Obama elected, and then it's also the fact that he is African-American. Um, and that's always been the subtext um, in the, the propaganda campaign uh, that we need to be afraid of African-Americans and people, um, Latino, people of Latino background um, and that we need to be afraid of our own government, that our own government is going to come and take our guns away. Mm. So when you put a figure like Barack Obama in the White House, that really um, hit home for the people that had been listening to that fear campaign for, for a very long time. So while Barack Obama was president, gun sales went through the roof. As soon as he left office, they fell precipitously. Uh, and the truth is the gun lobby what they're mainly concerned about is keeping sales up for firearms manufacturers and ammunitions manufacturers. So in the wake of Trump's election, we've seen two things, the extraordinary involvement of, of progressive activists, um, the extraordinary increase in their involvement, um, at the same time that we're seeing the gun lobby push for uh, the kinds of relaxations on gun legislation that we haven't seen for a very long time. Things like silencers. Now, I'm going to let Diane talk about that if, if she's comfortable. If not, um, I can explain it. But um, silent, Diane, would you like to explain? That's a federal no, issue, which is why I thought I'd lob it over to Diane. But no, if you'd like me you, to describe you, you it, you I can. Go ahead on that. Um, okay. Actually, I just want to back up just a little bit. And okay. one of the most um, interesting things that you guys shared at the meeting that Kathy and I were at was the view on the Second Amendment. Because I, mm -hmm. very naively, I'm very... Um, I'm just learning all mm -hmm. of this right now in the last few months. I've never been an activist for or against guns, um, but the, um, the the perspective for Moms Demand Action is that you guys believe in the Second Amendment, yeah, correct? Yeah, exactly. And, and I, you guys may be like, yeah, duh, but I thought that you're like, no, we're not. So Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think as Sarah mentioned, it's it, the gun lobby um, likes to use a lot of different terminology and to try to disparage what we're doing. Um, you know, they'll always say it's gun control. They're trying to take away our guns, you know, et cetera. And that is not the truth at all. Uh, Moms Demand Action supports the Second Amendment, and we believe that you can support the right for people to own guns while still trying to limit keeping the guns out of the hands of people who should not have them. Uh, either be it criminals, uh, domestic abusers, uh, or people with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and we have members who are NRA members, uh, who are gun owners, um, especially in some of our southern southern states. You know, there's uh, there's some very proud moms down in Texas and other areas, even here locally, that are gun owners, but they believe in the safety of their guns and keeping them safe and keeping them out of the hands of people who should not be having them. It's like it's living in the in-between of that we, you know, the polarization or the mm -hmm. dichotomy is always you're either with me or you're against me. Right. You're either for this or you're against this. And what I found from the Moms Demand meeting and from understanding what you guys mm -hmm. are doing is this is the in-between. This is right. about we can do both. We can be safe. We can be wise. We can take care of each other. And we can also keep Absolutely. our Second Amendment right. Right, right. And, you know, and you always hear the metaphor, the analogy, um, you know, they refer to autom automobiles, you know, and that's always the biggest um, analogy. But that it was one 
of the things that really struck me um, when you when you start talking about guns, we are not talking about um, you know taking away guns, but we are talking about putting some regulations and limitations and safety measures on it. Um, in, and as I said, the uh, the analogy with automobiles is you know years ago when Henry Ford you know started with his little automobile that went like twenty miles an hour, there was never any issues. But as you know, as uh, automobiles grew and changed, and and they were able to go at higher higher speeds, all those kind of things. They started instituting regulations and trying to limit things, be it uh, speed limits, safety belts, any of those things, or licensing drivers um, and making sure that they are safe in operating that vehicle. And really, it's the same way, at least the way we feel here at Moms, is um, with guns, is that uh, you know we don't want to take them away, but there's got to be some um, common sense here that's being used. Right. Like, think about the idea of saying, you know, we're going to take away your cars. Right. And people yeah. say, well, that would never happen. Right. And that's a very similar exactly. mindset yeah. that we can keep to keep us in the mm-hmm. in-between. So I just want to mention, though, you know, one of the things that Sarah talked about, though, was how um, a, there is a small percentage, though, of gun owners who own an extraordinary amount of guns. And it was just this past fall that Scientific American did a study on um, gun ownership. And, they, and the statistic is that 3% of gun owners own 50% of the firearms that are out there. Can you say that one more time? Yeah, 3% of all gun owners own 50% of the firearms, mm-hmm. which is just just an, out, you know, just an outrageous number. Um, but it gives you an idea of some of the gun culture that we're up against in the United States that we're not talking about some of the people who you know use firearms all the time for hunting or for own their own personal safety or in their own houses. But there are some, and, and in that particular study, they do refer to them as super owners. Mm-hmm. And it is um, definitely a, a target market for um, the NRA. Speaking of, because Sarah had you know had started talking about the NRA and you you had mentioned silencers, which you'll continue mm-hmm. with, but. Explain how the NRA changed, because one of the Mm. things that I always say when we talk about this on the show is that my father owned guns and he was a member of the NRA. And then I can't remember what year it was. I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. He said, I'm not going to be involved in that organization anymore. He said they used to be involved with safety. And now that's not what he was getting in his magazines. So could you explain what changed and what continues to be the way of the NRA right now? Sure, I would really like to do that. Uh, I was um, amazed to learn uh, the story of the NRA over the last 40 years. Um, I grew up in rural Indiana, so I remember thinking of the NRA as a positive organization when I was a child, a force for good. Uh, What happened is in the early 1970s, the NRA threw out its existing board uh, with the sole purpose, um, the deliberate purpose of changing its board and its mission. And from that point on, it has served quite openly among its membership, or at least among its leadership, as uh, a lobbying organization for the firearms manufacturers and the ammunitions manufacturers. Uh, So what really happened was um, they launched at that point a decades-long campaign uh, to try to normalize the ownership of guns in the United States. And, you know, before that change in the board, that's not what the NRA was about. Before that, the NRA was a hobbyist organization. It taught responsible gun ownership. It supported the interests of hunters. It helped them um, find each other. It helped them um, create camaraderie. Um, it, it, it did a lot of really positive things. Um, starting in the 1970s, 
uh, it became a very different organization on purpose. So I don't want anyone out there thinking this was just an accidental evolution. Um, this was very much mindful on the part of the leadership of the NRA. Uh, what they did was they launched, as I said, a decades-long campaign to normalize the ownership of guns, uh, which is really another way of saying, saying to change the culture. And what they have been working for for these 40-plus years is an America where gun ownership is as normal as the ownership of cell phones. They really want to see uh, an American. But when I say they, by the way, I don't mean the entire NRA membership. I'd like to be really clear mm -hmm. about that. The truth is, most members of the NRA, they join for the coupons. <laughs> in fact, we, we know for sure that over 70% of all NRA members in the United States are in favor of universal background checks. They own guns, but they do it responsibly. Uh, the truth is, it's the leadership of the NRA uh, and a small percentage of its membership Roughly speaking, the super, how did you refer to them, Diane? Super the, owners. The super owners, yeah. right? Um, that's sort of, you know, I'm stereotyping there a bit. But um, it's it's that small percentage of the membership that, that really serve to help advance the goals of the leadership, which is to serve as a lobbying organization for the manufacturers. Um, and when you think about it, it really makes a lot of sense from their point of view, because if everyone just like in the US, nearly everyone has a cell phone. If nearly everyone has a gun, then they sell more guns. And I'd like everyone to take a moment and reflect back on the, the event after Parkland at the White House when the survivors met with President Trump in the White House. Uh, and you may remember that his response, President Trump's response to what we can do to make our schools safer was to arm teachers. And there's a very specific reason for that. None of us in the gun violence prevention movement were surprised to hear that because Donald Trump is the NRA and the NRA is Donald Trump. And there's no separation between the two of them. So when his response to Parkland, his answer is we need to arm teachers. What he's really doing is serving as a mouthpiece for the NRA. And he's saying, if we arm every teacher in America, just think how many guns we're going to sell mm -hmm. and how much ammunition. And I, I believe his campaign received the highest uh, donation from the NRA also. At um, a rate three times higher three times than any other presidential candidate yeah, in history. Republican can candidates as well. Right. So m much more than, than Bush or, yes. uh, or any of the other Republican candidates as well. That's so. right. There's, there is no difference between Trump and the NRA. He effectively works for them. Well, and I think the point that you made, too, is um, about the leadership. And I always say, you know, with so many of these issues that we're, we're up against in our culture nowadays is to follow the money. And you look at the budget of the NRA and you look at the membership fee. Well, the membership fee and the um, supposed number of members that they have in the NRA does not calculate out to their budget and revenues. So, um, I mean, and you kind of look at it and their budget of the NRA is being supported by the gun manufacturers and just direct and the Russians and yeah, and possibly the <laughs> Russians, which there is significant evidence for that now. So uh, we, it's just a matter of, we don't know the extent to which right. uh, Russians right. have, have funded the NRA, but we know it's happened and is happening. Right. Yes. So let's, uh, because this, and I'm so glad you guys got to share all that because that was some of what Todd and I really needed to learn was the history. You know, we need, and I know there's so much more and that we could go down so many different paths there, but 
I think that's one of the most important things when we're talking about, um, and, and is the right language common sense? Because I know, Diane, when mm -hmm. you started this, you're like, I really want to make sure that I'm yeah. saying this in the way that people can hear it rather than it being a divisive thing. So is it common sense gun laws? Is that what we say? Yeah, yeah. and I should get back to with our organization, Moms Demand Action. I really, the, the focus is three different areas. Okay. The first being legislation, which I think we're going to have Sarah spend some time talking about that because it's such a huge component in this fight is trying to come up with some kind of common sense gun laws um, to help mitigate what's happening in our country. And that's really what it comes back down to. And one of the appealing things for me about this particular organization was that uh, with a lot of these complicated issues in our country right now, I really do believe the answer is somewhere in the middle. You know, it's not going to come from the far right. It's not going to come from the far left. It's going to be all of us coming together in the middle saying, what can we do here? You know, we don't want to take away your guns, but we, we need to set some kind of limitations here. We've got kids dying. We've got, you know, our families are just being um, decimated on so many different levels. And, you know, we could talk about this a little bit later, but when I started getting involved with this, I, I found the most shocking statistic is the, the number, not only the number of, of gun-related deaths every year, um, but the fact that of those gun-related deaths, right now the, the figure I think as of last year was about 35,000, I think. A in year? The, yeah. In, yeah. Roughly that. 90, Roughly. 96 Americans a day die exactly. by the barrel of a gun. And I think for 2016, 2017, it was about 35,000, if not more. Two-thirds of those deaths are suicides. I think that so many, um, so, so many times the, the mass shootings are getting a lot of the attention in the press, as well as some of our violence in our cities or in, in other urban areas. But um, really, when you think about it, I think everybody's so worried about their, their children going to school and what's going to happen possibly. But really, in some of the ways, you have to be more concerned about your children and your family members having access to a firearm um, when they are struggling with some type of a mental illness or depression, because two thirds of, of gun related deaths are suicides. Um, so Sarah, you spoke to us um, for about 90 minutes and it was fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and um, I had so many takeaways from that, but one was just the amount of organization and strategy that goes into how do we create change? And I'm gonna ask you a question that is gonna be probably hard to answer is, I don't even know where to begin to to ask you how do you do what you do and how close are we and what are some of the things that we're trying to do because I remember you even like we're not even going to try for this because we know that there's no hope that we're going to be able to pass this legislation mm -hmm. so <clears throat> excuse me so instead we're going to shoot for that one so I guess I just want to open the floor up to you saying how, how do we begin understanding what it is that you do and what what you chase after. Well, thank you very much. What a wonderful opportunity to be able to answer a question like that. Uh, and it's a nice segue into following up on what Diane was saying. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, like Diane, I'm also a Moms Demand Action lead. And the reason I joined Moms Demand Action is I like to call it um, the gateway drug to gun violence prevention <laughs> because uh, I remember, you know, I'm 46 years old and for most of my adult life, I remember thinking I'm really concerned about gun violence and I want to get involved, but I don't know how. And, um, I really, I, I've heard of the Brady campaign, but where are they? And I, I don't know what to do. And you know, it just, it was just sort of out there. I would read about it in the national newspapers, but it, it wasn't easy somehow to get involved with that organization. 
Uh, Moms Made Action makes it easy, um, and they also don't focus in on any one particular issue. So, for example, the Giffords Foundation, um, named after Gabrielle Giffords, the congressional uh, representative who was shot several years ago in the head and survived so dramatic and had such a dramatic recovery, uh, they're doing incredible work, but they focus mainly on legislation, legislative change where Moms Demand Action is more of an all-purpose gun violence prevention organization. Um, And it's national, and I really like that it's just extremely easy to get involved. If you can get past the fact that you might not be a mom, and so you think it's not for you, it is, by the way, it is for everyone. But as soon as you get past that, um, it's really easy to get involved with moms because we are everywhere, and we're getting bigger and bigger all the time. Um, I just love to throw out a couple of statistics. We um, Moms Demand Action in Illinois grew from about 12,000 members the day before Parkland. We have almost 50,000 in Illinois today. Uh, and we're growing we can barely keep up. <laughs> um, and so I'm getting off on a tangent a little bit here, but my point is uh, the reason I like this organization, um, this national organization, I'll talk about my state-focused work in a moment, but the reason I like this national organization is because it really allows people at the grassroots level to get involved. Um, instead of um, insisting on a top-down leadership structure uh, where the people at the national level are telling everyone what to do, it really allows people, leaders at the local level to take the lead and act and within some limitations, not many, uh, make their own decisions and do what they think think is best for their communities. Um, And that's very important because what we're really ultimately trying to do is change the culture around guns. We're trying to reverse what the NRA leadership has tried to do for the last 40 years, which is change the culture around guns so that they're normalized. We intend to change the culture around guns so that people have an attitude towards them like we do towards cigarettes or drunk driving. It's something that we don't want to outlaw. No one has any interest in that, at least almost the vast majority of people in our movement have no interest in taking away guns um, from responsible gun owners. What we want to do is for people to know that they must use their guns responsibly, just like we must drive our cars responsibly, which means not drive them when we're drunk. Just It means um, you know, we must not uh, inflict secondhand smoke on the people around us if they, you know, if they have asthma. I mean, you know, it's 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 about public health. It's about taking responsibility for the people in, uh, around you and for your community. Um, and and like all cultural change, that involves changing behavior and involves changing laws, uh, which is where the legislative work comes in. Um, legislative changes alone will never change a culture. Um, so it also takes things like Moms Demand Action's Be Smart program, which teaches people how to do things like um, how do you approach someone if you'd like to have, if, you, if they've invited your child over for a play date and you don't know whether or not they have guns, uh, you need to ask, right? I always say when the day comes that everyone who invites um, their child's friend over for a play date expects to be asked whether or not they have a gun and whether or not it's stored safely. When that becomes just normal, when that becomes something that everyone expects to be asked, then we'll know we've succeeded at changing the culture. It's kind of like, um, you know, does your kid have any allergies? Right, mm-hmm. um, exactly. And I've, I have three daughters, 
And I've never been asked that question, and I have never asked that question. Yes. It's just funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're about changing the culture, which takes changing behavior, um, creating taboos, right? It's it's now taboo to drive drunk knowingly, right? Um, we will not stop until we have a similar attitude towards guns. It. I want to see a day when it is taboo to own your guns irresponsibly. I have no problem uh, with people smoking as long as they don't do it around my children. Uh, I have no problem with people drinking as long as they don't get behind the wheel of a car, right? In the same way, I have no problem with gun ownership if people are responsible about how they own them and keep them safe and keep them locked up. Uh, so that's, that's how I, I don't know if I really answered your question. I know I didn't get into the legislative stuff. Um, but I think that's a very important piece to remember because a lot of people who want to maybe get involved in the movement, they think quite understandably, I'm not interested in politics. That's not Mm -hmm. something I want to get involved in. Um, you know, politicians and, and the way they operate and make decisions, that's just not for me. Um, I get it because <laughs> you know, I work with a lot of politicians and um, it's t- when I started, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable in the political space because, you know, I didn't like the idea that, uh, you know, some a lot of politicians would say one thing one day and then a week later say something else. But now that I've been doing this work for a long time, I realized that, you know, that's necessary. Um, that's how political change happens is through compromise. Um, and you know, politicians don't, I'm sure many of them would love to have the luxury of having their convictions and standing by them no matter what, but you know, politicians don't have the luxury of doing that. They need to get things done. Um, but there are a lot of people that are uncomfortable with that aspect of political work. And so I want everyone to realize there's still a very important place for you in the gun violence prevention movement, because we're also doing all of these other things to change the culture that has nothing to do with legislative change or working with politicians. And that work is just as important as the legislative change. And that is one of the first things that we always say about Moms Demand Action, too, is that it's nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we really don't care where you're at on the political spectrum. If you're willing to join this movement and work towards, um, you know, doing some gun sons legislation and talking more about, um, as, as Sarah mentioned, we have the Be Smart program here um, in Moms Demand Action as well, which is all about um, how do you have conversations about this? How do you uh, make sure that people are storing and locking their guns? properly. Um, and that's actually um, even locally here at, at our level, it's um, at the topic of our next meeting in June is um, talking about guns. We're doing a Be Smart presentation, but then also talking about how do you have just compassionate conversation with others about guns? How do you bring it up to um, your not only your children and, and talking to your children about how to handle it when you go to somebody else's house? But also, how do you talk to your friends and neighbors about it also? Your family members. Yeah, your family members especially. <laughs> At you holidays. Know. And- um, I just, just had a, a friend of mine talk about that where, um, you know, her, her parents are gun owners and um, grandpa was showing her children his guns. And it, it's a simple thing. But again, if you haven't thought about it and if you haven't talked about it beforehand, um, this was clearly something that she wasn't comfortable with, but um, it happens. And um, so that's, you know, as I said, the topic for even our next meeting is um, 
we were calling it actually um, summer safety in silence because I, I just feel like it is a silent issue in some ways um, in our culture right now where people aren't talking about it. And we've got summer coming up and sometimes people think about their children going over to other people's houses for play dates. But as, as you mentioned, Kathy, it could be family. Um, also, you've got uh, middle schoolers or high schoolers now that are starting to maybe explore their surroundings a little bit more. Uh, we live... Um, in a suburb of Chicago here. We've got our high schoolers who are getting on trains and going into the city. And what does that mean? And how do you be safe when you're in an urban environment or somewhere else? And as we all know, it doesn't even have to happen in the cities. It, you know, it's happening here um, anywhere, in rural areas, in suburban areas, anywhere. And that's exactly what I was going to bring up um, is that, well, first of all, I want to comment on what you said about like the parents or a dad or a mom bringing out a gun and showing it to their children. And it's interesting. This is the cultural thing that we were talking about because there was a time that maybe that was more typical or you know you hear the stories of the grandfather hands down the gun to the son mm -hmm. and you know especially when it's around hunting but it's that cultural thing again where that has a different meaning for people depending on where they live and depending on what they were raised sure. with mm -hmm. and so it's you know like I can hear the grandfather saying but this is our history this is what we do right, right. and the conversation is not your bad stop it it's let me explain how this looks and how this is different for our children mm -hmm. how they do drills now because someone's going to possibly come into their classroom with a gun, how this used to mean something so different than it does now. And so that conversation is not about, again, right and wrong, or, you know, this is black and white. This is, um, you know, we both can understand the difference between then and now. And I think you make a good point, too, because um, even that example I gave, it's not necessarily uh, an incorrect thing to do, but it was something that she wasn't comfortable with as a parent, but she never had that conversation or thought about it in the context with, with her parents. Right. She didn't get brought in on the conversation. Right, right. Well, I'd like to just follow up on what you both said for a moment. And I think like so often happens, our children lead the way. Mm. And I can tell you that, you know, I've been doing this work for about three years and I've had at least half a dozen of my own children, uh, the children of my, you know, relatives, uh, my cousin's kids, my friend's kids. I've had about half a dozen of them come up to me. You know, they're aware of the kind of work that I do. And I've had um, maybe five or six of them come up and in tears thanking me for the work that I'm doing. And I'd like everyone who hasn't already taken a moment to think about this st to step back and think about the impact that it's having on our children to be going through lockdown drills on a daily basis in their schools. Um, and obviously, I mean, there are children in other types of communities where they face um, this kind of vi uh, threat from um, gun violence on a daily basis. Obviously, they are traumatized um, to an even greater degree. But let's just step back and realize our children are, are telling us what the problem is and it's our job to react. And that means we have to end this situation where we're in right now, where the taboo is to talk about guns. What's taboo now is talking about it. And how did we get here? Let's step back a minute and think, how do we get to this point where talking about gun ownership, asking uh, a new acquaintance that you've made at your friend's school um, and, and you're thinking about sending your child over to their house, asking that person whether or not they have a gun, that's what's taboo. How did we get here? We got here because the NRA, the leadership, the gun lobby, not the whole NRA, but the, the part that's lobbying on behalf of um, the gun manufacturers, they've waged a 40-year propaganda campaign to which we've all succumbed, whether we realize it or not. And 
that campaign has taught us for decades that this is a partisan issue, that gun violence is something that you know, progressives or Democrats are against gun ownership. They're, they want gun control. They want to take people's guns away. Um, Republicans, for the most part, uh, are in favor of gun rights. It, everyone needs to stop back and step back and realize that we've been a, we've been a pawn in their game because it serves the interest of the gun lobby for the people of the United States, you know, broadly speaking, to see this issue as a partisan one. Because if it's partisan, then things like talking about it with your relatives and your friends who you know don't agree with you becomes taboo. And if it becomes taboo, then that opens up the door for us to be afraid of each other. And if we're afraid of each other, we're far more likely to go out and buy a gun. And anyone out there that you should, no one should think that any of this was accidental. Okay. <laughs> this was deliberate and planned and has been going on for decades. It has involved things like literally purchasing a majority of the members of Congress. Um, the NRA has bought and paid for a majority of the members of Congress. That's been systematic, step by step. It's taken place over the last several decades. Um, and now they've gotten one of their own in the White House. And that has been planned and deliberate from day one. And it's been going on while the rest of us just really weren't paying attention. So our children are telling us now, it's time to pay attention. So um, I pulled this, I, I did a little bit of research on the PowerPoint that you sent to me, and there's a bunch of questions that I may or may not get to, but one of them was in your PowerPoint, you said nine out of 10 Americans support background checks. If that's the truth, then why can't we get it passed? Because of Congress. Because the vast majority of the members of both houses of Congress take money from the NRA. And background checks in order to be useful, for example, in Illinois, we have universal background checks, but Indiana does not. So anywhere in the city of Chicago, you can get to Indiana in 40 minutes and buy a gun without passing a background check. Uh, so in order for background checks to really be useful, they have to be universal in, this, in the sense of law in every state. Um, until, so this is the situation right now because of what I described, um, the NRA's 40 year long plan to, to normalize the ownership of guns. Uh, a half of that plan has been being involved in the legislative process and taking over the legislative process at the federal level, which they have succeeded beautifully at doing. Uh, so this is the situation we're in today. At the federal level, all we can do is combat bad bills. All we can do is play defense. The best we can ever hope for right now is to defeat a bill that will make us less safe. For example, concealed carry reciprocity. If we have time, I'll be happy to talk about that. Uh, but the thing to remember is that the reason we can only play defense at the federal level is because a majority of the members of Congress are always voting according to the way the NRA tells them to. Now in some states, including Illinois, but definitely not all states, uh, maybe a third of the states in the US, we're sometimes able to pass good bills. We're sometimes able to play offense. Uh, so for an example is gun dealer licensing, which just in the last few days has been renamed. If we have time, I'll be happy to explain that in more detail. 
but gun dealer licensing in Illinois is an example of a good bill, a bill that we're playing offense on. Because when gun dealer licensing or some version of it becomes law, it will immediately have an impact on reducing the 40% of crime guns that are confiscated um, in Illinois that originate from Illinois gun dealers. But if you're, if you're listening closely to what I just said and you're a numbers person, <laughs> what about the other 60%, right? Uh, the other 60% are coming from other states, states that do not have good gun laws, states that have no hope of passing offensive gun safety laws. Uh, states like Indiana, which borders Illinois, Wisconsin, which borders Illinois. Both Indiana and Wisconsin, you can get to the borders of those states within 40 minutes from the center of the city of Chicago. Um, both have far more lax gun laws than the state of Illinois. Um, we're never going to get real change until we vote out the members of Congress uh, who are stopping us from getting universal gun safety laws because they are voting whichever way the NRA tells them to. Uh, I'm personally a great admirer of John McCain. I think there's a lot of things to really, um, you know, look back on his life and his career and be very grateful for. Um, certainly his service to this country is second to none. Uh, however, he, over the course of his career, has taken over $7.5 million from the NRA. Um, you know, no politician is perfect, but that has to stop. I don't care who you are, okay? Um, you, if, if you're a politician and you're taking money from the gun lobby, then what you're really telling people is I care more about my own political future, my own political goodwill than I do about the safety of the people that I serve. So what I want to see is a day Hope, and actually, I'm quite hopeful. I don't think it'll be that too far in the future. Uh, but what I want to see a day, I want to see a day when those members of Congress who, who take so much money from the NRA, they need to be removed from office. And they need to be replaced with people who will put the safety of their constituents first. Um, one, of the, one of the takeaways I got from hearing you speak last month was to your point, your hopefulness, your optimism, and it wasn't even optimistic. You're basically, you basically said, I don't know if it was specific to a certain legislation you were referring to, or it was just kind of the big picture, but you're like, we are going to get there. Like, and there's really not a doubt that we are, it's just a matter of when. Yeah, and that's, I say that a lot. In fact, um, you know, I So that concludes uh, part one of our two-part interview. If you want to hear the uh, part two, just go to uh, podcast number 434 and check out the second half of it. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. We appreciate you. Remember, you can subscribe to Zen Parenting Radio so you never miss an episode. And feel free to leave a review on iTunes. It helps people find us. Do you want more Zen Parenting? Check out Team Zen. It's a $25 monthly subscription where you'll get two live Zen Talks with an opportunity to ask Kathy and I questions live. If you can't join us live, you can still access all Zen Talks through the Team Zen Podcast app. You'll have access to all previous Zen Talks, 
connect with like-minded people through our private Facebook page. We have a book club and get discounts on everything that we have to offer. Interested in inviting us to speak at your conference or organization? Go to zenparentingradio.com and submit a speaker request. While you're there, check out our upcoming events or you can purchase one of my three books. Guys, want to achieve a better work-life balance or deepen your relationship with loved ones? I have good news. I coach guys. We can talk in person, by phone, or FaceTime. You choose. First session is free. And if you're in Chicagoland, contact me about the tribe. It's a men's group, and it's an opportunity for guys to come together and talk about what really matters. If you ever shop via Amazon, you can help us out by going through the Amazon link under Support Us on our homepage. It doesn't cost you a thing, but we get a small commission from Amazon. Finally, I want to give special thanks to our two foundation partners, the Tree of Life Chiropractic Care and Avid Painting and Remodeling. Thank you for your love and support, and keep on trucking.